We are in the book of Acts in this series we call Transformed. And we have started off the year in the book of Acts, and man, it has been amazing so far. So many things as we walk through what God did in the early church, and we also see him starting to do that in the lives of people around us as people start coming awake to the ways of Jesus and to the acts that Jesus wants to do. And we made it all the way to Acts 17 and verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw, what the, as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he's uh, on his second missionary journey. This is, you know, the first time he went out and he got beat up, almost stoned, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, John Mark left him. We talked about all of that. Now he's coming for round two. And he comes in, he, he actually, he starts off at the beginning of the chapter. He goes to the city called Thessalonica. He preaches in the, the synagogue there, three, you know, uh, you know, services in a row. They run him out of town. And, you know, you think like not much has happened there because he was only there for just a short amount of time. But then he writes the book of, you know, he writes Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. And in it, he talks, I mean, that was written like just a few months after he visited. And in it, he's writing about how basically they're a model for others to follow, that their faith is, you know, it's off the charts and they, you know, some of them are becoming martyrs. And so sometimes you never know what seeds you are planting, right? Just a little side note, you never know what seems like it might be an unfruitful season or an unfruitful time. It may be doing things you don't have a clue, you don't even know about, but God knows about. And so be faithful in those seasons because you don't know. And so he goes there for three weeks. They run him out of town. He goes over to Berea, and they run him out of town. And so now he goes over into Athens. And as he's walking through this great city, which, you know, is kind of in its glory days, I guess, you know, hundreds of years before, but it's still amazing. There's still, you know, the architecture and just a beautiful, beautiful city. And he's walking through it, though. And as he's going through, he notices all of these idols, now, we're used to, you know, hearing about countries, you know, different countries in India and different places where there's going to be idol worship or polytheism, many gods that they worship. And sometimes we don't think about, like, in these type of cultures. But he, he's, like, going around, he's noticing all of these idols that are, you know, around everywhere. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. This was Paul's pattern. He would show up in a city. He would go to church, and he would start to reason with the Jews to say, hey, Jesus actually is the Messiah you've been waiting for. And most likely, some people would believe, and then a lot of people would be upset, and they'd kick him out. And so then his pattern would be next. He would go out into the open air in somewhere, and he would start to preach out there. So now he follows his pattern. He goes to the synagogue, and then he finds himself out in the marketplace, and now he's preaching about Jesus in the marketplace. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him, and some said, who also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, well, he seems to be preaching about some foreign divinity because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And so these are philosophers, Stoics, you know, well-educated people, and they're looking at Paul like he's some uneducated person. But I mean, you guys know Paul was very educated. He was very, but they're kind of like, well, who is this country guy? Doesn't seem to know anything about back, you know, whatever they're saying about him. That's what really what the, the actual language means, kind of like a, a, you know, a backwoods type person who's uneducated. That's kind of what they're leveling at him. And he's noticing all of these idols. 
And I think when we read something like that, there's a temptation in us to think in a way that's disconnected that that would ever be us. But how many of you guys know you, idolatry happens in, in where we live just as much as it happens in where he was at, right? It just takes different names and different forms. And I just have to imagine that Paul, if he was walking around our country, he would be noticing idolatry after idolatry after idolatry after idolatry in our country. It just doesn't necessarily come in the form of statues or you know, things that we actually bring an offering to. We do that in other ways. Now, as we get into this message... I want you to push back on the tendency that was, will rise up on the inside of you. And I promise you, it will rise up on the inside of you to think, well, this is about somebody else, like the world out there. Well, of course the world is full of idols. Yeah, we live in a culture that blah, blah, blah. And, and just push back on that tendency for just a little bit. And let's talk about the possibility that even us as believers could have something going on on the inside of us that could look like idolatry that doesn't glorify or honor Jesus. So let's just put the world aside for a second and let's let the preacher, uh, the Holy Spirit preacher come to the inside of us. By the way, if you want to know how to be a good listener of a sermon, there's kind of like three phases. I'm just making this up on the spot, by the way, but there's like three phases. One is you, you start hearing me preach and you'll think, well, he must be talking about them. Phase one. Phase two is, is he talking about me? <laughs> phase three is, Jesus, what would you have to say to me? Just skip to phase three. Just don't, don't think, oh, is he talking about, he must be talking about it. No, is he talking about me? No, let's go right to say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Let's get Holy Spirit blinders on in a good way for a moment and let's allow him to speak to us. So what is an idol because there are idols in every culture. Well, idolatry is simply whatever we look to as our Savior. Whatever we run to. And you can be following Jesus and still have other go-tos. Things that you run to in time of help. Things that you run to to, uh, to alleviate problems in your life. And idolatry is whatever is above God. And that could be anything. That could be money. You might find yourself in a season, even as a follower of Jesus, where you have drifted into money has now been all I think about. It's all I've oriented my life around. It's what I worry about. It's what I think about. It's what my life has now adjusted to. And in that way, it becomes a functional savior in our life. That now it has to become the thing that needs to save us. And without that, we don't have hope. Is anybody following me today? And so idolatry can become success. Like if I don't succeed, I don't know what, I, I don't know if I can keep going if I don't have some success in my life. It can be anything. It's, it's anything that is before God, ahead of God. God plus this. My life plus God. You know, because you can do it that way too. It can be anything. Idolatry is taking something that's not God, but treating it like it is. And so again, let's, let's dig into our, let, let's make this decision that we are going to go and set the plow deep in our heart today and say, God, if there is anything in me that needs to be on earth today, let's dig it up. Let's get it out of here. Let's, let's root it out. Idolatry doesn't have to be a possession. It can actually be a way of thinking. You can make an idol, an idol out of the way that you think because it becomes 
your savior in the sense that when you're in trouble, you default to this way of thinking. And it, be, it can become a coping method, whatever it is. It can take any, any type of form. It's whatever owns your heart. And whatever owns your heart, you essentially are worshiping in a way that maybe you don't even recognize. And so the Apostle Paul walks through Athens. He sees all these idols, and it disturbs him. It wrecks him on the inside. And I just have to imagine that the Apostle Paul might walk through our culture and quite possibly might even walk through our church culture. And I'm not just talking about journey. I'm talking about the wider, but come on, let's bring it home. Is there, are there things, God, that we have somehow made an idol that has taken the place that we go to that instead of go to you? And so we want to uproot those things. And so Paul is talking about these things, and then he goes on in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So these are well-educated men, but he's like, but I also know this, you guys are religious people. Like you've got all of this philosophy and all this type of stuff, but make no mistake, I can just look around and you are very religious. And he says, for I passed along and I observed all the objects of your worship. And then he makes an interesting observation. He says, I found also an altar with the, inscript, with the inscription to the unknown God. And he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, that I proclaim to you. So he takes something that they had a, a reserved spot for an unknown God they didn't know about. And Paul begins to do something very interesting. He suggests that they may be actually worshiping the true God, but they don't know it. Because they've been treating him exactly like they do all the other gods. In this is a warning for us. Is it possible that what happens, is, what, ha what happens for us is we can treat God as one of the options in our life? When we treat God as one of the options of, in our life, what is happening is what Paul is addressing. He's saying, yeah, you may have God in your mix, but you don't have God in your midst. You, you, don't, you may be... He may be one of the things, but he's not the thing. And because he's not the thing, then you're missing out. And when we do this, here's the warning for us, that he becomes part of our life, but not our life. He becomes a piece of the pie of my life, but my orbit does not orbit around him. It orbits around other things, right? And so let's not let this moment pass us by in Scripture and just say, that must be for somebody else. And then let's not get offended by it and say, well, is he talking about me? Because I can tell you all the reasons why that's not me. Let's say, God, is there something in my life that I've drifted into? Because it's possible for us, even as people who say we're followers of Jesus, to drift into this. Because you never drift into a good place. You always drift into a bad place, right? And so here's a, a thought on these scriptures. Number one is this. And this is for us. Have I made God into an idol? I know that sounds really strange to ask, but let me just show you how we, even as followers of Jesus, can now shift into a mode where God becomes not the God on the throne, but he becomes an idol that we've come to worship. Paul preaches a sermon. He says in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. 
So you know when you've kind of shifted to make God an idol, when God for you lives in a temple and you go and visit him there. So in other words, if you think of God as something that only happens at church, you may have drifted into idolatry, where God is no longer the King of kings and Lord of lords, but God is an idol that you visit. He becomes a deity that you come to a temple to worship, or you go to God activities to participate, but outside of that, it's not happening. You know, another way to talk about this is to ask this question, does God own you, or do you own a God? And so whenever we engage with God as someone we come and visit, instead of one who is our life, then we have functionally made God as an idol in our life. If God is someone who we go to the, and I know we should intentionally go to church, we should intentionally go to our prayer closet, we should intentionally do all these things, but if God is one that you only encounter when you intentionally go to some place, instead of him affecting every part of our life, then we functionally begin to make him an idol. Acts 17, 25. Well, let me just say one more thing on that. If it ain't working at home, it ain't working. And so if, if you just come to church and that's where you encounter God, but you go back home and it's not working in your marriage, it's not working in your work, it's not working in your peace, it's not working in your joy, it's not working in your pastime, it's not working in your, it's not working, then you have functionally made an idol out of God. He becomes somebody you visit and someone you, you come to, but he's not someone who lives in and through you. All right, he, Paul keeps going though. He goes, nor is he served by human hands, as, like, as if he needed anything. Like, you guys are worshiping all these idols, and you serve them because your gods need all of this stuff. And when you do this stuff for them, you get, you get favor from them by doing it. He's like, that's not the God I'm talking about. Since he himself, he's the one that gave all life and breath to mankind. He's not a God that needs something, but he's the one who gave everything, right? And so you know that you've drifted into idolatry with God when you work for him as a way to gain favor with him. And this is, a, this is an easy drift. This is an easy drift. Because then it's like we begin to work for God as if God needs something, right? And, and there's like an exchange in an unhealthy way where it's like, okay, if I do this for God, God will do this for me. That's idol worship. That's essentially what they would do before the idols. They would take and offer sacrifices in order to you know, get rain or get, you know, whatever they, they needed. That, that's idol worship. Paul keeps going. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. He's like, God's got this all laid out. You should go here, you should go here. It says, why? So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, it's actually the case that he's not even far from you. That's what he's saying. So you know you drifted into idolatry you know, when you use God as a means to an end rather than seek him as the end. And this is something we can do as followers of Jesus even. Where we drift into where we're using God as a means to get something instead of seeking God as the end and as the prize. And you can do this in, in really subtle ways that look very spiritual. Like, I'm going to seek God and, you know, 
because I want a blessing from God, because there are promises of God. And if I do these things, then, you know, and what happens is we end up using God to get his promises. You can do this for healing, right? Like if I just, like if I just do all these things and I give this thing, you know, and we use God to get a healing from God. We can do this financially, like, well, the principles of God, if I tithe, then I can do it. And we use God as a principle to get an end. We are functionally treating God like an idol instead of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can, you can do this in politics. Come on, I'm just not even going to go there, but, you know, <laughs> where we use God as kind of, well, I'm going to go there. We're going to use God as, as a way to get something done. You can use God as a means to an end in a crisis. I've seen this hundreds of times. People get into a crisis, and what happens is, now I'm all in. Now I'm thankful that you know, people you know, dive into God whenever there's a problem. You know, we should do that. But what happens, I've seen so many times people go, and man, they got a crisis in their life, and then as soon as the crisis backs off one notch, then they're seeking God backs off a notch, Right? Because we were just using God to get something. And so this happens when we use God to, as a means to an end. It can happen for an answer to prayer. We got something we're desperately wanting from God. And so, man, we are doing all this stuff. And then we get the answer to our prayer. And then, boom, we back off. You know that you have been treating God as a means to an end rather than seeking God as the end. And when we do this, we've drifted into a form of treating God as an idol that we visit but it's not really something that's our orbit at home. We, we drift into where we're trying to do things for God, to try to get things from God. We do this by using God as a means to get things for us instead of just seeking him as the end. And he goes on and says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or something. He's like, he's not one of those carved images. And he also goes this, this far. He says, and by the way, he's also not an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So again, let's resist the temptation of thinking, well, yeah, this world out here is just forming God in their image. No, let's ask the question. Have I been forming God in my own image? Have I been molding God in my own imagination? Listen, one of the ways you know this is if God always agrees with you. God's always on your side. God's always got your back. God always thinks like you. God's always putting a stamp on what you're doing. God's always confirming your thing. No, there, there's going to be some times when you're following Jesus where you hear something and you're like, what? Are you sure? There's going to be some times when you have to wrestle with something. May I even say it this way? There's going to be times when God offends you. And if God never offends you or offends your thinking, then you just must be perfect and you've already fully sanctified. And you're the first one, besides Jesus, who's ever done that in this flesh, and you're the first one. Congratulations, you get the ribbon and the gold star. But that's not what's happening. And so there's got to be times when we recognize that I've got to check myself. Maybe it's places in our life where we didn't, we didn't like the way something turned out. And so we end up moving the goalposts a little bit in some way. You know, we had a bad experience, and so all of a sudden we adjust things. And all of a sudden, we start to look, we start to create a God of our own imagination rather than the God of the Bible. Instead of holding fast to something, it's like, I don't understand. 
I don't understand why that happened, but I am not going to adapt God into my own imagination just because I don't understand. I'm going to hold fast to the God of the Bible even if I don't understand. And so Paul's addressing, he's like, he's not a God you can make up in your own imagination. He's the God that, you know, he's the God that you serve in the way that he has created all things. And so we have to remind ourselves, we can't make God in our own image, but we've been made in the image of God, right? And he's on the throne and he dictates. All right, so my daughter on the way home last night, she was like, dad, your sermon was really long. So I'm going to speed up. She said it was really good. It was really long. So I'm going to speed up. But we do have a Bible Project video because we haven't had one for a while. So let's watch. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods. And they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day -day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Huh? Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. 
And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So we remind ourselves that we are made in his image, that we don't get to make him in our image. And so one of the ways we can, some of the questions we can ask ourselves, like, have I turned God into an idol? Is there any, are there any idols in my life? Here's a question. What am I financing and facilitating in my life? And I don't just mean money. I'm talking about like the currency of our heart, the currency of our attention, the currency of our focus, our hope, or whatever it is. What am I financing or facilitating? And it could be money. It could be those things. Like you could look at your, you know, statement, bank statement or something, and you could probably tell something by that. But if you dug into that, but I'm just talking about the attention of our heart. Is God just a means to an end? And can I see that somewhere in what I'm financing and facilitating in my heart and in my life? There's a really interesting story in the book of Judges. Sometimes you can just skip over things. But in Judges chapter 17, it says like this in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, you know the, the 1,100 pieces of silver that when you found out they were gone, you know, you said that bad word. <laughs> That's what he says. He's like, you know, you uttered a curse and you spoke it in my ears and, and it, it was also spoken in my ears. He's like, I just got to fess up that the silver's with me. I took it. And so he brings this, he's like, you know, I know you're distraught about that, but I've got the silver and I want, I've got to bring it back. I've got to get it back to you. And so it goes on, it says, and he restored the 1,100 pieces. of. Well, she's first of all says, blessed be my son by the Lord. So she's 
seemingly just extending grace at this point, but you'll see it goes a little bit further than that. It goes a lot further than that. And he restored, he gives back the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother says, now I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Let's pay very close attention to what's happening here. For the purpose of making a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I'll restore it to you. And so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And so what looks like just benevolent grace at the, at the beginning, it turns into a very problematic situation because this, there's several things going wrong with this situation. Micah's mom financed and facilitated his own idolatry, the idolatry of, of her child, essentially. He's, he's actually grown up, as we'll find out. But there's several things wrong with this story. One, the mom overlooks the son's sin. There's one thing to have grace, but it's another thing just to gloss over it and to say, you know, as if it was not a problem. And she just glosses over his sin, doesn't even, doesn't even address that in the way that it should be addressed. And then she takes, listen to this, she takes what the son lusted after, the silver, and then she, she takes what he lusted after and creates an idol for her son out of that and gives it back to him. You know, at first you can read this and say, oh, look at this good mom. No, she's taking the very thing he lusts after, gives it back to him in a form of idolatry and rewards his wrongdoing and sends him on a wrong path. And so then what happens is the son Micah, he takes this idol that he's received from his mom and he takes it and he creates his own version, his own religion out of it. And he, watch, you can see what happens. He, he finds his own priest later on and all this stuff. But in verse five, he says, it says, and the man Micah, listen, it notes, it says, and the man Micah. Like he's a grown man, but he's still being affected by this. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod, which is like garments, priestly garments, and household gods. So, so she, this thing he lusts after, she gives it back to him in form of an idol, and now he starts to multiply that. He creates an ephod, he creates other household gods, and it goes on to say, and he ordained one of his sons. I mean, think how crazy this is. He, now he ordains his sons as a priest to this new religion he's created. And in those, and I, this is an appropriate statement, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What I want you to understand is if there's something in our heart, whatever you do, the next generation will take it a step further. And so you may be just fine hit and miss with church. I know I'm getting on somebody's toes. That's all right. You may be just fine. But your kids may look at that and say, well, it worked for mom and dad. Maybe I don't have to even do that much. You may be just fine not being connected to the body. You may be just fine not being a generous person. You may be just fine, you know, where you, God's a slice of your pie. You may be just fine. It may work for you, but whatever you do, the next generation will take it a step further. The flip side of it is, whatever you do, like if you're seeking after God, I believe the next generation is going to take it a step further. And so be careful Let's just talk to parents. Be careful what you finance and facilitate in your, in your life because there are not only your families watching, but people around you are watching, right? And so we want to be a, the image of God that when people look at us, they see the image of God as best we possibly can 
on this planet. Because whatever you finance and facilitate, these become the altar at which you are truly sacrificing and worshiping. Because people will sacrifice for those things that they worship. And so I could tell you what you worship essentially by what you're sacrificing the most for. And what tends to happen, here's another way to look at this. We tend to finance our fears. And what I mean by that is we tend to shore up our fears. The places that we actually have a fear, so let me just put it this way. If you find somebody who's overworking all the time, it's probably because there's a fear of lack somewhere in their past. And so what people do is they end up trying to fuel and finance as much distance from that fear as they possibly can. And so the result of a fear of lack is overworking because we fuel and finance our fears. We're trying to create margin from our fears as if we could. So then what happens whenever you try to do that, now overworking has functionally become our savior and we've made an idol out of it. That's why it's so hard to stop doing because it has become our savior from a fear of lack. You have a fear of poverty maybe as a root inside of you. What happens? Overspending. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. As a pastor in the first years of this church, there was a couple who, you know, she grew up in poverty and he was a rich guy, so she married rich because she just wanted to avoid all the stuff she grew up in. She had a fear of poverty. And so the whole time, like, I'm trying to do marriage counseling with them, and they are just fighting, fighting, fighting because she's spending, spending, spending because she's trying to outpace her fear. She's trying to outrun her fear. She's literally trying to finance and facilitate a way out of her fear. And now overspending has become an idol that's hard to let go of. One day I got a call from the guy and he's like, you know, I came back home from the work trip and, and everything's gone. And I was like, what do you mean everything's gone? He's like, everything. She took, she got movers and she moved everything out of the house while I was gone on the trip. She could not let go of it. She, they were having problems, but she was just trying to outrun her fear. And so the overspending became an idol in her life that she was financing and f- facilitating. Listen, if you have a fear of the future, you begin to overworry. I'm worried about everything. And so now we're like consumed with worrying about the future. What are we doing in that moment? If, you, if you're struggling with this, I want you to understand one of the things that is happening in this moment. What you're trying to do, whether you realize it or not, is you're trying to outrun your fear of the future. You're trying to create, like if I can worry enough about it, it will somehow functionally save me from the fear that I have about it. If I can create enough margin, if I can work, and so then over-worrying becomes an idol that is so hard to let go of, you feel like you cannot function unless you don't worry. And it has become an idol in our life. And it's so hard, the reason why idols are hard to let go is because they have become your savior. They've become the thing that saves you in a time of help. So we default to worry because it's my savior. Because if I don't worry, then I won't be saved. You know, if you have a fear about protecting your reputation, then you become overprotective of your kids. Now I'm getting there. I better back off this because when I preach on this, people leave the church. So I'm just going to touch in it, you know. But what happens is, we begin to try to micromanage the image of our kids 
because it reflects on our reputation. And somewhere down deep, we have a fear of our reputation being tarnished. And then we end up trying to control the, out, the, the look from our kids because it reflects on us. Be careful what you find. Listen, it, it, all of these things are issues that become idolatry. And we're trying to solve a problem. But we're trying to solve a problem in a way that's not godly. And so then what we'll do is we'll end up doing what we already talked about. We'll say, well, I need God in the mix. And then we'll try to use God to solve that problem. Instead of realizing, like Paul says in verse 28, that it's actually in him we live and move and have our being, that it's in him is the answer anyway, that we can rest in him, that he's trustworthy. The good news is that the good news applies to every one of these fears. That Jesus says, we can take ground in all of these areas. All right, so let's wrap it up because I can't preach too long. So let's wrap it up. Let's go to Athens, though, and I'll take you there by video. Let's go. In Paul's speech to the Areopagus Council, he used an altar to the unknown God to illustrate that the God unknown to the Athenians was really the one true God of the Bible. Greek philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle used the generic term theos or God in their ancient writings. So Paul's explanation would have been extremely interesting to the educated philosophers here in Athens. Paul went on to make the gospel understandable within the Athenian context. He referred to Greek gods, Greek philosophers, and Greek poets in his talk delivering a masterful example that the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to everyone. Paul concluded, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 29 through 31. Many people rejected Paul's message here on Mars Hill that day. But Luke records that a number of people became believers, including a man named Dionysius, who himself was a member of the Areopagus Council, along with a woman named Damaris. Now, we don't know much about these first Christians here in Athens, but history records that Christianity grew here in the late first century. Over the years, one of the big symbols of the expansion of Christianity was the number of Orthodox churches built over pagan temples throughout the city. I just think that is so cool that like they can go back through archaeology and see, oh, that this, Jesus conquered. We just built a temple right over that idol, right? And so that's so cool. But here's the last question I want to I want to give you. If you want to kind of step into this and like you're serious, you're like, okay, I recognize there's some things in my life I need to break. Let, let's go one step further and let's ask ourselves a question: Are my high values his values? I, I love this. Um, statement or this, this thought that I heard a long time ago. I've shared it several times, but I know it's not a perfect illustration, but I think there is some truth that we need to pay attention to in it. And the thought is this, that if you were to take all the money in the world, take it away from everybody, every bank, every institution, every person's saving account, put it in one big pile, 
and then go throughout every, all of the humans that are living and equally distribute out of all the money in the world so that everyone has exactly the same amount of money. Like if you were to do that, all seven, eight billion people, whatever, and now everyone starts off with the exact amount of money, all the money in the world is evenly distributed. Within five years, all the money would be back just the way it was before it was evenly distributed. Why do, why do we say that? Well, because of people's values. The people who have a value to save will save. The people who have a value to spend will spend. The people who have a value to invest will invest. The people who have a value to take risks will take risks. The entrepreneurs will start building things. All of these things. And, and in a matter of years, maybe it wouldn't be five, maybe it'd be, you know, I, there's exceptions, but over time, what would happen is all of the tumblers would fall back into place. Why? Because people have certain values that dictate behavior, and they become indicators of what's going to happen next. This is a result of people's high and low values. So can we just do a heart check, and let's just ask God right now, like, what are my high values? What are the high values in my life? And do my high values match his values? So let me give you some examples of what high value is. If you have a high value of love in your life, unity is probably going to flow in your life. You're going to have more unity than somebody who doesn't have a high value of love. If you have a high value of love, then what's going to happen? You're probably going to have a lower offense level in your life. So if you have high offense... There's probably, I mean, we could, we could match it with something else. Maybe we could match it with low grace for people. Because highs and lows tend to connect to one another. So if you have, let me give you another example. If you have a high value of stress, whether you want it or not, whether you, you know, think, oh, I don't entertain it, but it happens, whatever it is. If high stress, and that becomes a value in your life that you end up living by, can I just tell you, you're probably going to also have low discernment. Because whenever you're in a high-stress environment or a high-stress thinking all the time, your discernment goes way, way down. High values, low values. If you have low value for grace in your life and you don't really understand grace, you're probably going to also have a paired high value that I find my worth in what I do. And so you can, in, you can find an indicator in your life if you meet somebody who has a high value of worth unhealthily in what they do, and they are connected to what they do, and they can't detach from that. It's probably because there's a misunderstanding of the grace of God somewhere in their life, and there's a low value for grace. So highs and lows. If you have a high legalistic culture in your heart where, you know, I have to be a rule follower before Jesus, and it's high legalistic, unhealthy legalistic culture. Guess what? You're probably going to have low authenticity and you won't be able to open up to people. Because high legalistic means performance. You can't have authenticity generally if you have a high legalistic culture in your heart because it's going to be hard for you to reveal to somebody that I didn't keep all the rules. High values and low values affect things. And so Galatians chapter 5, there's a famous scripture that maybe we haven't seen it in this way before, but it says this in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here we've got high spirit, high flesh kind of competing for one another. It says, for the desires of the flesh, they're against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit, they're against the flesh. 
for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, guess what? You are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, uh, you've got impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissensions, divisions, enviness, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He's like, I'm not even going to list all of them. There's a lot, right? That's what he's saying. And he goes on and it says, but, it, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of these things. And if you want to know more about that, I preached a whole series about that last summer. But what is he saying here? He, essentially, let's put it in our language here. If you have a high value of having the Spirit of God present in your life, guess what is also going to come with that? Love, joy, peace, patience. If you have a high value of fleshly thinking, worldly thinking, sinful thinking in your life, and that's a value that keeps resurfacing, then what are you going to have? You're probably going to have high anger. <laughs> You're going to have high all this other stuff going on. You're going to have a tension going on. So you have low spirit. We can look at it another way. If you have low spirit of God in your life, you have high anger going on. And so we can use these to see where we're really at. All right, so married people. Let's talk to married people for a second. Married people, if you have a high understanding of your purpose in marriage, then you're probably going to have less friction in your marriage because you understand the purpose of your marriage and everything starts to align with that. High value of purpose, lower friction, right? By the way, we have a marriage conference coming up at the end of the, the month, so a little commercial for you there. Single people, if you have this disproportionate high value that you have to be in a relationship with somebody, you are probably going to have, paired with that, low standards. So I got a high value, I gotta be with somebody, low standards. Married people, if you have a high value to serve in your marriage, guess what, you're probably going to have a lower divorce rate than other people around you. Because we understand what marriage and how it works. To any, any of us, let me just say it this way. If you have a high value of comfort in your life, as a follower of Jesus, you're probably going to have a lower obedience rate. Because all of these things play out. So ask ourselves, are my high values his values? Because if you want to walk free, if you want to take ground in this area of your life, what we need to start doing is aligning our high values, feeding and financing of the currency of our heart, the high values that line up with his values. And so if you don't like the culture of your house, ask yourself, are my high values his values? If you don't like the culture of your marriage, are my high values his values? If you don't like the culture of your kids, are the high values his values? If you don't like the, the, your attitudes going on in your heart, maybe it's time to look at what we're financing and facilitating, and maybe we're fueling and financing the wrong values in our life. So Paul wraps it up, and we're getting ready to wrap it up. The worship team can come back. Acts 17, verse 30 says, These times of ignorance God overlooked. Another translation just says, God kind of winked at this in the past, but now we know better, okay? Saying, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This just means to change our thinking, which will affect everything else. Because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world with righteousness by, world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's preaching the gospel there. We all have a choice with a message like this. Will we change our heart or will we change the subject? Because it's easy for us just to gloss over these things and to move on and pretend like nothing, there's nothing to see here. Again, there's a temptation in us right now to just say, because right now I imagine what's happened in every one of us because it's happened in me too. Like there's a spike somewhere on the chart in our heart that says, ooh, you better deal with that. And there's also a, an accompanying temptation that comes from the enemy that says, don't worry about that. Just move on. And so we have an opportunity. Are we going to change our heart? Or are we going to change the subject? Are we going to ignore what's actually happening? Or are we going to deal with this? You see, I, I remember when my son, he was uh, in kindergarten. He was playing on a flag football team. And, you know, flag football team, as a, as a kid, you're in kindergarten. There's, I mean, it's just, it's not pretty. It's just... The dad, the coach, you know, he kept giving the ball to his own son who would do nothing but run in circles and stuff. I've never wanted to trip a kid so bad in my life. He was not good. And then, you know, even though it's like, like there's rules and there's flags and there's a football and there's goals and there's all this stuff and people are, you know, occasionally, you know, accidentally scoring, you're supposed to not keep the score, right? How many of you guys have been there? Like you're not supposed to keep the score. But how many of you parents, you're keeping score, like you know. And all the kids know the score, right? They know. And then if you're like me on the way home, I, if my kid won, I'm letting him know, by the way, you won, you know, like you, I kept score, you know. But they want you to pretend like it's not happening. Like, oh, we don't know the score, right? It's like I remember when I was playing a, a board game years and years ago. It was a Christian board game. We invested it and we get all the rules. We get all the way to the end of it. And we find out that at the end of it, everyone's winners. No, there's not. No. <laughs> Somebody's going to lose this game, and somebody's going to win this game. How many of you guys are with me? Like, like this, we're not in heaven yet. Like, this is somebody's going to lose this game, right? Somebody's going to win. And we could just pretend like we played all that, and it's all, you know, no. Let's deal with it, right? And so what I'm saying is, let's deal with it today. Let's deal with it in our hearts today. Would you stand up with me and close your eyes for just a moment? We only do that not as a... Ritual, not as something that makes us more holy, just as a way to focus. Because so many times we end up creating idols in our life as a fallback in case the Jesus way doesn't seem to work. I just want you to hear today that Jesus is trustworthy, He's faithful. You don't have to finance and facilitate a fear and create an idol out of something to try to protect your heart. He's worthy of handing your heart in. Trade it in. We are made in his image. He's not made in ours. And so we align our lives with that, God. We say that you are on the throne and we are not. And would you take just a moment right now, if there's anything in your heart that you need to deal with, Come on, let's not just gloss over it and pretend like, ah, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not anything. Let's just make a moment. Let's mark this moment and say, I, I'm trading this in. I'm not, let, let's be provoked in our spirit like Paul was. Let's say, I'm not going to tolerate idolatry in my life in any way, shape, or form. And I'm going to put my trust back in Jesus.